This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer at Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm HF Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and chief quality officer for the Baptist system. And hey, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, I am so excited. Today we have John Grout. And John's really a leading expert in the area of mistake proofing, or people in the lean community might call it pokeyoke. And we're really looking forward to leaning in on this subject of mistake proofing. John, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where do you work at and what's your role? So my name is John Grout and I work at Barry College and I am the department chair of technology, entrepreneurship and data analytics. And uh, I have spent the last probably 30 years thinking about mistake proofing and how to help people not make mistakes. Well, John, uh, once again, thank you very much for being here. And um, I spent a little time on your website, uh, mistake, the Mistake Proofing Center, and I, I found that all your examples were really, were really good. You know, this is something that that I really don't know a lot about. Uh, mistake proofing and and poke yoke for for our listeners and me as well. Give us give us a little bit of history uh, behind the term and and behind the concept and, and the process. So what you will find if you read the literature on poke yoke because it was originally a Japanese term uh, coined by Shigeo Shingo. He started out with baka yoke, which was foolproofing and uh, uh, some of the Japanese workers took umbrage with that, and um, so he changed it to um, to pokayoke, which is to avoid inadvertent errors. And um, so uh, that's kind of where it got started. Uh, it's been translated into English as fail-safing, mistake-proofing, error-proofing. You'll find it under a lot of different titles, but they all mean more or less the same thing helping people to not make errors associated with um, that they make inadvertently, that they don't mean to make. No, it's a really good uh, piece of history there. Um, yeah, I certainly wouldn't like to be called a fool either. But um, <laughs> can you give us a few examples of, of what of, of how either Toyota did this or how others in different industries have have gone about um, error proofing? So error proofing um, or mistake proofing is something where it's very detail oriented. And so depending on where you do your work, it will look differently in different companies, in different hospitals, in different places uh, throughout. Um, probably the most common and uh, I think a relatively famous example of mistake proofing is in your car. So when you get in your car and you turn the key, uh, you want to get your car out of park and into drive or reverse. And it turns out that nowadays, almost everyone has to push on the brake in order to get the car out of park. Uh, that was the result of some uh, some uh, accidents that occurred in 1985 and 1995 with the Audi 5000 and Jeep Grand Cherokee. And... Um, it I think I had an 85 Jeep Grand Cherokee. 
Oh, well, the point out, I think that's my first car. <laughs> so the 85 wow. Grand Cherokee is fine. It's the 85 yeah. Audi 5000 you've got to watch okay. out. <laughs> and um, in well, both cases, the gas pedal and the brake are shifted to the to the uh, left. And so normally when we hold on to a steering wheel and put our foot at the center of the steering column, we're going to hit the brake. But on those two vehicles, it was kind of in between the gas and the brake. And so people were putting their foot on the gas when they meant to put their foot on the brake. And so if you're in the car, you think your foot's on the brake, you take it out of park and put it into a, one of the either reverse or drive. And the car starts to roll and you didn't think it was going to roll because your foot's on the brake. What do you do? You push harder on the brake and you get uncontrolled acceleration as the result. And so almost every car nowadays has a an interlock between pushing on the brake and moving the the gear shift lever um and you know we see all kinds of things uh mistake proofed if you go through your car you will find lots of different examples um back and, and in jake you you probably never can't relate to this because you you probably wore a pocket protector but you know <laughs> I, I i i ruined a lot of shirts because my ink pen would leak onto my shirt, but uh, a great example in, in the Mistake Proofing Center is how on the clip, the pocket clip, that the little lever, whatever you call it, to disengage the uh, the ink pen, once you put it in your pocket, it retracts automatically. Hmm. So That's a fancy pen. That is a fancy pen. Yep, and it didn't last very long, but uh, I too have wrecked some uh, shirt pockets. And want all of your listeners to know that I am not just a, I don't just study mistake proofing. I'm a consumer of it because uh, I make plenty of mistakes. And so I appreciate it when designs keep me from making errors. But, you know, you bring up, a, you know, that, that leads me to my next question. When, you know, when we talk about process improvement, you know, we we're doing things to actually with the process to make errors less likely, but Pokeyoke seems like it's taking it a step further. It's actually putting a separate step in in the process. Is, does that make sense, or, or would you still consider it all part of the same process? Well, I think um, most folks, when they're working on improving quality, are probably using statistical tools. And so if you're using a lot of the Six Sigma tools, um, a lot of those have to do with reducing variance, which is a very different form of kind of source of problems than is mistake proofing. Mistake proofing is trying to catch those things that are very rare, very intermittent events. And so statistics aren't going to catch them very well. Rather, you're going to have an event report or some kind of problem that occurs, and you have to figure out a way to respond to it. And the problem is if you're dealing with it using a normal table, you can't get out in the tails far enough to keep it from happening guaranteed forever. Um, mm -hmm. Not that all mistake proofing works at that level, but that's the goal. Um, within mistake proofing, some mistake proofing is added steps, but generally speaking, I try not to add steps. I'd rather take the existing process and put something in the design that will stop the process when something's wrong. And so the only way to proceed is is with things as they ought to be that's good so does mistake proofing come out of, of murphy's law which essentially says that something 
bad can happen. It, it will happen eventually, even if it's if it's rare. Uh, if the volume is high enough, uh, Murphy's law is exactly that. Uh, so think about probabilities. Uh, if there is a positive probability that something happens, given enough samples, it's going to happen. And so I, I'm a big believer in Murphy, uh, not only from my own personal experience, but just a, a, as a mathematical fact. Um, you know, I, I, know, I have a company south of town here where I live in Rome, Georgia, where they make 10 million Rice Krispie treats a day. And you say, oh, it's a one in a million possibility. Well, for them, that's going to happen 10 times a day. And mm -hmm. so the volume is what decides kind of how much risk we want to tolerate. But generally speaking, with most of these things with medicine, we'd rather have it not occur at all. And mistake proofing, proofing would always do that, but sometimes it will. Al, uh, you know, Skip, before we start recording, Skip, uh, you mentioned, are there different degrees of mistake proofing? And do you, do you, you know, make it, are there some things where you absolutely, there is no way that this error can occur and other things you may be a little bit more tolerant. You, you put, you put things in place, but not, maybe not as strict or stringent. So there's a whole spectrum of uh, mistake proofing devices from things that are very innocuous and all they do is help you do things correctly um, to things where it stops the process dead and tells you in no uncertain terms that something's wrong. And so uh, there are some things that will uh, stop the process and cause problems. There are sometimes mistake proofing devices that will just work their way into the, well, are designed into the system in such a way that it creates kind of a self-correcting process. So, for example, in my town, there are lots of log trucks. And if you ever rear end a log truck that's fully loaded, the logs are going to come right through your windshield. You know, your bumper is not going to hit the back of that truck until you're already um, decapitated. Yeah, in big trouble. Um, and so I always think about, you know, having to do an emergency stop behind one of those trucks. And if I slam on the brakes and if I'm in a car that doesn't have anti-lock brakes, that's a driving error. If I slam on the brakes in a car with anti-lock brakes, then the brakes take care of it, keep the wheels just barely rolling. They maximize the, the, um, the 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 ability to stop as quickly as possible so minimize stopping distance and um it does that without any intervention from me and so that's probably as clean a mistake proofing as you can do now having said that we still have terrible car accidents and that's sure. because sometimes people will take mistake proofing devices and use them for other purposes. In this case, it was designed to mistake-proof the braking process, but now we just use it to drive faster in wet conditions. You know, we tend to be less afraid of the wet conditions, and so we alter our behavior and drive faster in situations where we used to have, would have shown much more care. And the trick in medicine is to make sure that your culture uh, is such that you don't let that slippage occur. That's interesting. Let's maybe move to some examples in, in medicine and healthcare of, of mistake proofing. The one I can think of 
that we've read about before was um, the gases for, for anesthesia are, are on the walls in the patient's room, you know, the oxygen and, and, you know, air and everything else. They actually, I think, have different hookups and different sizes, so you can't connect, you know, the oxygen to, to something else, et cetera. Um, is that a, a good example of, of mistake proofing? That, that's a fantastic example of mistake proofing. And so provided that people will kind of let the process talk to them, it will work. And so it will keep the wrong gases from being connected um, and um, is very effective, provided everything is in good condition and working properly. I am aware of an error where the, 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 the little pin that sticks into the hole um, was um, knocked off of it, was broken. And so it would allow the wrong regulator to be, to be put into the in, into the connection. And so um, we still have to have some level of vigilance, even with mistake proofing. Jack, I think about I think about using our omni the nurses using our omni cells as well. That that when the medication door opens, you know there may be I don't know two dozen or three dozen different little compartments, but only one actually unlocks so you know the pay you know the nurse can't open up the wrong one i guess that would be an example you know sort of an example as well absolutely and um if you follow that down into the pharmacy itself you will see um all of these new systems for pharmacy techs so that as they are picking the materials uh the the medications from the uh shelf systems uh, that they are automated to help them do that process effectively. So in our local hospital, they have a series of shelves that go up into a sort of a cassette and they they barcode uh, or they um, go into the physician order entry system, point to what they're wanting to fill in terms of prescriptions. And the shelves actually move down to desk level and LED lights mark up which bin to take it from. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and when you're putting uh, medications in, you have to be careful about how you do that as well so that you don't introduce errors anywhere along the way. Having something be absolutely mistake-proof is really a high bar. It is not easy to do. And that's what I wanted to ask. Are there certain processes that you can't fully mistake-proof? I mean, the one I think about a lot is is wrong site surgery. You know, we have processes in place to decrease the risk of a wrong site surgery. You know, the surgeon marks that that arm the day before, or we have the timeout um, that, that are supposed to occur before each surgery, um, but they still happen. Um, despite years and years of efforts being put in trying to eliminate them completely. Yeah, and, and so that's the challenge. So you have sort of the, the sign your site um, uh, operation where the patient actually participates in that. Uh, and that's a good step in the right direction. Uh, the timeouts are a good step in the right direction, but it is, you're still kind of, doing this effort like Sisyphus of pushing the rock up the hill um, because it requires everyone to be attentive to that process and for perhaps junior people to speak up uh, where there are senior people in the room. Um, and once again, culture, culture matters. Um, in aviation, 
they had those same kinds of issues and now they have something called crew resource management where they teach the junior people in the cockpit set kind of ways of saying i have this concern um and um having senior people understand that their role is to listen to that and to take it into account um and I think medicine has come a long way in that respect, but I think probably individual um, surgery suites will uh, see different cultures depending on the doctors involved. Here at Baptist, we we don't use Lean Six Sigma uh, as as our improvement methodology, but but talk to us a little bit about Six Sigma now, and and I can never remember. If if you get to Six Sigma as far as errors, how many? That's one out of how many? So with Six Sigma, the technique, you know, in Six Sigma and things like that, uh, really is just an improvement methodology with kind of a problem-solving loop uh, that you go through. Uh, the name Six Sigma comes from the fact that you would that in industrial quality control. You would like to have your process, your tolerance limits, your specification limits, if you will, mm -hmm. um, six standard deviations away from the mean, yep. which means that the mean can change one and a half standard deviations and still only create 3.4 defects per million. 3.4 per million. And, and, you know, thinking about that, like the the like the airline industry, I mean, they what is how many crashes do you see per million flights? I mean, it's it's even less than that, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, in an average year, commercial aviation last time, these old numbers are a little out of date, but last time I saw the numbers, it was like 160 people a year die in commercial aviation overall. And over the last couple of years, we've had uh, a few years where we've gone an entire year without a single uh, passenger fatality. And so they they do really remarkable work uh, in terms of keeping uh, us safe in the skies. So and and I guess you know you know part of that whole process is is mistake proofing. You know is making it where it is harder and harder to make a mistake. Yeah. So they have uh, something called a flight psychologist, and the flight psychologists listen to the black boxes and hear the last 20 minute minutes of flight crews lives and try and glean as much as they can from it and it's you know you meet those people and their <laughs> their work has affected them because it's very difficult work um but what you find is that they have no simple answers nor will they tolerate simple answers to very complex problems. And so they're thinking about kind of what's going on in the head of the um, the flight crew. They're thinking about what are the physical attributes of the environment in which they're interacting, the cockpit, and um, how to design those cockpits and train those crews in such a way that they will not make those mistakes. And so that's why you have all the flight simulators so that they can learn those complex responses in a safe environment where they're faced with actual um, disaster scenarios. Um, and so that's how we get, you know, outcomes like the miracle on the Hudson, you know, back mm -hmm. when Sully Sullenberger landed the plane in the Hudson River safely. You know, at some level, it wasn't a miracle at all. 
everything worked properly. Um, and um, I actually met Jeff uh, Skiles, uh, who was the co-pilot, and had a nice chat with him after a conference on root cause analysis. And, you know, after he got done with his debriefing and was, you know, back at work, he just got back on the plane and, and flew the next flight. So, wow. um, it, it's remarkable. And, you know, the air traffic controllers and the uh, boat operators in the Hudson all responded the way they were supposed to. And so it's sad to say that when we see everything work right, we go, oh, that's a miracle. It should not have been a miracle. It wasn't really a miracle. Everyone was just doing what they were supposed to do. That's interesting. Let's talk about how to identify processes for error proofing. You mentioned earlier that if you were you know, working in continuous improvement and you're looking at your statistics, you wouldn't really focus on maybe these um, tail cases because you know, they're rare. They they hardly ever happen. Um, so how, given that they're rare, how do we, how do you think about identifying processes for error proofing? Okay. So the first thing we have to do is kind of slice the problem domain in half. And, well, I don't know what the proportions are, but um, we want to sort out which things are questions of the intent was incorrect. So let's say you have a doctor who is diagnosing a patient. There's no kind of pre-existing way to determine you're going to do that exactly right. You have to deliberate and decide what to do and then proceed. If that deliberation involves actual analytic thought, uh, in all likelihood, that is not something you're going to mistake proof. However, if they've the, the individual has deliberated what it is that they're trying to accomplish, and what they're trying to accomplish is the correct thing, but then they execute that correct thing in in error. That's the thing where pokey or mistake proofing would work best. So in the case where you have something where the intent is correct, but the execution is flawed. Um, I think the other thing that you think about with with medicine is there are errors where you say, you say someone got a wrong medication and you say, how in the world could that happen? And the answer is it happens all the time. You know, that's something we've seen over and over and over again. Um, those things where the error is repeated over and over and over again, those are the ones that we want to look at and think about mistake proofing. Because if it's something where you say, I would have never guessed that that could go wrong, then you're not going to mistake proof it in advance. And so, gotcha. so most of the time, these are things that have been reported um, and you know showed up at, or showed up as a near miss or an, a, an event, an event that actually happened that you do your RCA and identify how it happened and then go in and error proof it, as opposed to thinking about a process and then trying to predict what bad thing could happen with that process. Yeah. And since we're talking about root cause analysis, if it's something where you blame the operator, that's a great place to start saying, let's go a little deeper. Because one of the things about flight crews in aviation is they never blame the, I mean, they will say it's pilot error, but that's not where it stops. It stops with how do we keep the pilot from making that error? How can we make 
the flying public safe, even with with um, flight crews who will make mistakes. And so if you are taking an example and saying this is a place where, you know, you've got doctor, nurse, choose your label there. Um, but but this person is making an error. Um, that's not a root cause. Okay, a root cause has two important attributes. One is that if it were changed, the outcome would be different. And two, it's under our control. Now, we tend to think about human beings and their thought processes as being under our control. But in fact, um, those thought processes aren't really under the, our control. We, you know, we can learn things and still make mistakes. Like the time I looked for um, pizza in the wrong appliance. You know, my, my, my sons and I were, were, were baking pizza on Sunday afternoon. Um, the, um, the buzzer rang. We went back to get the pizza out of the oven. It was the first house we'd ever had that had the built-in ovens and the cooktop. We looked at, I, I walked up to the stove, to the cooktop, looked in the cabinets underneath it, and there was no pizza there. Why? Because the process, my, you know, my autopilot was to go and look where the stove was and look underneath there, and that's where the pizza always went. And it's always been that way for my whole life until I got to this new house. And then, you know, the question then is, what's the root or what's the corrective action? You know, you could send me to an to an appliance um, training Re education program. seminar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> educate me on what a stove looks like and what a cooktop looks like. And you know, this is the fridge and this is the dishwasher. You know, and I could spend eight hours doing that, but would that really have fixed the problem that I had? And the answer is no, it wouldn't have. And I would have been offended by the training in the process. John, I've got a question for you. I know that we're trying to cover a subject that you have written tremendous amount about, and there's a, a lot of science behind this subject. Um, how how close are the relationships between um, the science of habits and mistake proofing? And the reason I asked that question, I remember rereading the book Atomic Habits, and he gave an example in that book about I think it was over in the Japanese culture at the train station where they would always point and most of the time nothing ever bad happened but he gave the example of when they did do the pointing they were able to find someone that was about to be drugged by a train because his arm got caught in the uh, the train. And for everyone that loves the book Atomic Habits, if I just butchered the story, I apologize. <laughs> but but I am curious how close the relationship is between the science and the study of habits and the science and study of mistake proofing. So most of the study on the mistake proofing side comes out of the work of James Reason, who is a cognitive psychologist. Um, I don't think he viewed it through the habit lens. But what I will say is that habit can be very powerful if you get people to be in the habit of doing it exactly correctly the first time. As soon as they start making errors and kind of open up other neural pathways, that starts to cause problems. Um, we also see this on um, aircraft carrier operations where there's a very tightly choreographed 
behavior on aircraft carriers that make them uh, as safe as possible. They are a super dangerous place to work. And yet you find that generally speaking, um, they're pretty safe. Uh, and when a mistake happens on any one carrier, all of the carriers adjust based on the learning that happened on that one. And that's the other half of what I think medicine could really benefit from, is that as people learn kind of these um, sad lessons in one location, that they can do it in another location. And in fact, the example I'm thinking about is a woman who crossed the flight deck right in front of a landing aircraft. She was not uh, injured, but um, they changed the behavior throughout the fleet uh, to standardize their signaling um, and uh, that was done uh, for a near miss. And so uh, near miss reporting and event reporting and learning from those mistakes is really important. Well, John, this was great. And like I said, I knew that 30 minutes would go by very quickly with you. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. For those that want to go deeper into this subject, that want to learn more about the, the science and the art of mistake proofing, where would you direct them? So uh, I have a, a book that was published by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. And um, I can either send you all um, a PDF of that that they can then download and read because it's the full text, or they can go to the ARC website and search on mistake proofing and grout, G-R-O-U-T, and find it there. That's probably the option I would go with. Let, let them go to the website and look for it. Well, John, thank you so much. On the behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, thank you for your work. Thank you for explaining it to us. And just thank you for your passion. I, on behalf of Baptist, just thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, John.